Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. You know, sometimes we think, boy, if I could just ever get to the place where I could just praise God and just shout to the Lord and praise Him for what He's done and thank Him and rejoice in His goodness, all my problems would be over. (laughs) Truth of the matter is, they're just starting. Because the enemy never goes away quietly in the night. The enemy hates praise. He hates God. He wants the throne that he will never have. And so anybody that gives God his place on his throne and honors God's position as King of kings and Lord of lords, the enemy will stand against that person. The enemy will fight you. The enemy will resist you. The enemy will come at you if you enthrone Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. And if you allow him to rule your life, you can count on it. You're going to have opposition. The enemy is going to see to it. He's going to fight you and he's going to resist you. He's going to come at you every possible way that he can until he finds the method that he thinks is most suited to pull the rug out from under you, to bring you down. His schemes, his attacks, his strategy, his battle plan is to oppose you. And what we have to do is you and I have to take opposition and turn it into God's opportunity. You see, because in the moment of the opposition of the enemy, we have an opportunity to trust God with our lives, with our health, with our resources, with our family, with our ministry, with whatever it is, God gives you the opportunity to trust Him and turn that thing around and move it from an obstacle to something to build on. How can you and I do that? Well, we need to recognize how the enemy works and his strategy. There are ways that he works from the outside. There are ways that he works from the inside. Nehemiah chapter 4 gives us both. There will be opposition without, and there will be opposition within. But what I want us to look at this morning is how it affects us in the outside. Those who try to influence us from the outside. Next week, we'll talk about how the enemy tries to work in discouragement. But what I want us to look at this week is how he tries to oppress us in vile and evil and very definite opposition in our lives. Now, the key verb in this passage is the verb to build. And notice in verses 1 through 6, he says that we build in face of taunts. Nehemiah was being taunted. In verses 7 through 9, there were threats. And in verses 10 through 23, there was internal tension. We'll get to verses 10 through 23 next week. But you and I need to understand, we are not ignorant of his devices. We know how the enemy works. And so what are the tactics of the enemy? And these are tactics that hold true no matter what age you live in, no matter what your economic income, no matter what your background. This is the way the enemy works to undermine you and to get you to quit what God's tried to start in your life. Number one, he works in ridicule. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Who are they to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? And now Tobiah the Ammonite was near to him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. First of all, ridicule. The game plan of the opposition is to mock, to ridicule. Notice they mocked the Jews. They were playing mind games. This was some psychological warfare. This is the way the enemy attacks. He tries to ridicule your faith. I've met so many young people that have not taken stands for God on their campuses because they're afraid of the people that will ridicule them and, and mock them and make fun of them and their faith and their relationship to Jesus Christ. People who will not stand and witness to members of their family because in the past they've been ridiculed and mocked by those members of the family. They've been made fun of. Their faults have been pointed out. Their mistakes have been waved in front of them. You and I understand ridicule. It's a part of our life. It's a part of our culture. It's the, it's the humor of the age to slash and to cut down and to ridicule someone to the point where they become helpless and hopeless. Some of you have been the, the victims of people just verbally abusing you to the point where you don't feel like you've got any self-worth anymore because somebody just ridiculed you to the point that you felt like you were nobody and you were worth nothing. That's a method that Satan uses. And it's something he's used throughout history. And Goliath mocked and ridiculed David. Only thing is, David won and Goliath got his head cut off. In Hezekiah's reform in 2 Chronicles 30, they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. The soldiers mocked Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest, mocked Jesus. The crowd mocked Jesus at his crucifixion. When they saw the Spirit of God fall and the power of God fall at Pentecost and those disciples came out of that upper room full of the Holy Spirit, prayed up, the people who were the critics and the cynics said, they're drunk. These people are plastered. There's something wrong. They, they've been drinking all morning. It's too early to be drinking. All through Scripture you see this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 in that hall of fame of faith it says that there were those who had trials of cruel mocking can I tell you what ridicule is Thomas Carlyle defined it best ridicule is the language of the devil ridicule is the language of the devil and by the way if you're standing for God and you're being ridiculed it's a good sign that God's about to do something in your life that God's beginning to work. Now, there are two things about ridicule that I want you to see. Number one, ridicule is always a tactic of those who cannot be reasoned with. You know, don't confuse me with the facts. Don't confuse me with, with the truth. I, I know what I believe. I know what I feel. And, and you can't reason with me. People who ridicule the Christian faith, I, I often try to put a copy of Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict in their hands. Say, so here it is. 
Here's historical evidence. This is evidence even outside of the Bible of the facts of the Bible that supports everything that God's Word says. You read it and you come to your own conclusions. Well, I don't want to know that. I don't want to read that. You see, ridicule is a thing that doesn't want to be reasoned with. Number two, those who ridicule will always overstate their case. Notice what they say in verse 2. Can they finish in a day? Nehemiah never claimed they could. These verses are full of sarcasm and, and cutting remarks, and the game plan is to mock and to ridicule and to sneer and to judge and to make snide remarks until you get to the point where you say, look, if you just leave me alone, I won't say anything, I won't do anything, I won't cause any problems, just stop. And Satan works on a lot of people that way. Some of you have great potential and God's got great things he wants to do with your life, but somebody way back even when you were a child or when you were in high school or somewhere on the line said, you can't do that. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're not educated enough. You're not the right person. You're not the right style. And you've listened to them and their ridicule has shut you down. You don't have to listen to that. That's not from God. You don't have to believe what they're saying. Now, the goal of the ridicule is very simple, to stop you. Yeah, well, you may start this, Nehemiah. You may get this wall started, but you'll never finish it. And if you finish it, it won't last. You see, they want to stop us because they want us to operate in the realm of common sense instead of in the realm of faith. And if you operate your life only by the five senses, what you can see and feel and taste and touch and smell, if you operate your life in that realm, you are limited to that realm. But God calls us to operate in the realm of faith. God calls us to live and to gird ourselves with faith and with truth and to stand on His promises. And when you're ridiculed, it's a test of your belief in the truth and it is a test of your faith. Now, how do you respond to ridicule? Number one, keep your heart in tune through prayer. Look at verse 4. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. Keep your heart in tune through prayer. Now, do you notice what he prayed in verse 4? So as they speak, let it be unto them. Let them be overrun. They say we're going to be overrun. Lord, you let them be overrun. They say, we're going to be plundered. You let them be plundered. Lord, you take their words and turn it on them and let it be their own judgment. Are we not judged by the words that we speak, that no empty words come out of our mouth? Nehemiah turns to God and he prays. You have to keep your heart in tune with prayer. If you're not prayed up, ridicule will suck you down. It will destroy you. It will beat you up and take away everything about your life that's valuable. You and I must understand that in ridicule, you have to go to God and say, God, you've got to handle this. I can't stop this ridicule. So I'm giving it to you. And I'm asking you to handle these people. And I'm asking you to deal with that. Listen, anything that demoralizes you, turn it to prayer. Notice what he says. I'm praying, I'm giving this to you, God, because they have demoralized the builders. Anything that demoralizes you, anything that discourages you, is a sign waving in front of your faith that says, face that says, you need to pray through this. 
You need to ask God about this. You need to seek God with this matter because this is going to pull you down if you don't stay prayed up. So the first thing you do is you keep your heart in tune through prayer. Secondly, keep your goal in sight, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. A mind to work and a heart to pray. You have to have both of those things. You have to have a mind to work to keep at what God's called you to do, and you have to have a heart to pray through the situation that's trying to make you give up on what God's called you to do. You see how they work together? One encourages the other. You keep working and going down the track that you're supposed to be going. You don't give up on your work, and you don't give up on your praying. You stay fast with your work and you stay fast with your praying. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 29 when the church was being ridiculed, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. We built the wall. Keep your focus. Keep your eyes on your goal. Keep your focus on what God's called you to do. Keep your focus on the promise that God gave you, on the word of truth that God gave you. Keep your eyes and your heart and your mind stayed on Him, not on what people are trying to tell you you can't do. Now, there's a second thing that the enemy uses. If he cannot stop you with ridicule, and these progress downward, if he cannot stop you with ridicule, the next thing he'll do is he will work in the realm of resistance. He will begin to orchestrate resistance. Look at verse 7. Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. Remember, this just started with Sanballat and Tobiah. Remember in the very beginning, just two guys. Now they've got the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. Remember, Sanballat was angry. Now he's got other people angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance in it. Resistance. Now Jerusalem is surrounded. The whole city is surrounded on all sides. To the north, it is surrounded by Sanballat and Samaritans. To the south, by the Arabs with Geshem. To the east, Tobiah and the Ammonites, and to the west, the Ashdodites. Everywhere these people turned, there was the enemy. They could not go anywhere. There was no way of escape. The resistance had formulated. Now it wasn't just two people on two sides. The resistance had encompassed the city, and they were all organized and ready to go after them. Now I want you to notice something about this. Notice that the word angry is used a couple of times in this chapter. You know, angry people are... Angry people seem to be running everything in this country. Everything seems to be motivated by anger these days. People are angry at their former spouse, they're angry at their kids, they're angry at their parents, they're angry at the justice system, they're angry at the prison system, they're angry at the government, they're angry at the citizens. Everybody's angry. You ever notice that? I mean, should it be any surprise to us that road rage is a problem in our culture? you got a bunch of angry, frustrated people riding around just looking for somebody to tick them off. 
They're just waiting for somebody to push the last button. You know, I mean, it's like the mom who said, when the dad came home and said, what have you been doing all day? She said, standing on my last nerve. I'm just on my last nerve. I've had it. You see, resistance begins to get organized. Anger has a way of pulling people together. And angry people pulled together can be very solid in their resistance. And what happens? He takes his anger and it spills out on other people. And it spills out on other people. And before you know it, they've got a cause developed. And the resistance has taken the form of a conspiracy rather than pot shots. It's now orchestrated and organized. They've stationed themselves all around the people of God and all around the city of Jerusalem. And everywhere they turn, these people are looking at people who want their destruction, who want their failure. I believe the epitaph of these kind of people is, I was against it. I was against it. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And in fact, I remember meeting a guy in a church one time, and, and he, he came up and volunteered this. You know, some people just would be better off if they just didn't say anything because they reveal some things about themselves they shouldn't. This guy walked up and said, you know, he said, I vote against everything in our church. I said, why? He said, because I don't believe anything ought to be, ought to be unanimous. I just want to say, did your mama drop you on your head when you were a baby? Did, you know, what kind of line of reasoning is that? I, I just don't believe anything ought to be, I believe somebody ought to be against everything. Well, what if it had, been, had to require a unanimous vote for the resurrection? Would you have voted against that one? Well, no, I wouldn't have voted against that one. Then why are you voting against the things the resurrected God's trying to do? You see, it's amazing to me how people can just develop an I'm again it mode. Those of you in the South know what I'm talking about? I'm again it. I don't know what it is, but I'm again it. <laughs> I'm not sure I can spell it, but I'm again it. <laughs> you know, I'm just against it. Why? Just cause. You see, there's, there was resistance that was formed by these people, and they, and they orchestrated an opposition crusade. I, I found... A, I found a quote this week about resistance. It said, people who are resistant are about as useful as a pigeon on a statue. You can think about that one for a while. I tell you what people who organize resistance are not. They are never people of prayer. Because prayerful people resist or recommend in ways other than the world does. You see, one of the reasons why churches have so many problems is because they're organized around worldly principles instead of around prayer and biblical principles. They're organized around doing the way things men do it rather than doing the way things God does it. And you're always going to get in trouble. You're always going to have problems if you're organizing what God's trying to do around what man does. You have to organize what we do around what God says because we're called to act by faith. And there was this resistance given to Nehemiah, and he had to stand against it. These people were not people of prayer. So guess what you do to respond to resistance? Pray, verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Now notice, they prayed and they watched. They had a heart to pray and a mind to work. Now they're praying and they're watching. They're kind of praying like with one eye open, you know. 
like you do during the invitation sometimes, you know? Every head bowed, every eye closed, you kind of go like, you know, you want to see who's moving, you know? I remember the first time I was at a Billy Graham crusade. I wanted to see what happened, you know, and Dr. Graham said, you know, bow your head slowly. And so I just, I stood there and I, I prayed like this, squinted just enough so I could just see anybody that's moving, you know? I don't know if that's what Nehemiah had in mind, but Nehemiah said, don't just sit there with your eyes shut. You can pray and work at the same time. You can have your hands busy about what you've been called to do, but you need to do it in a prayerful environment. Now, here's the law of leadership. Petition without precaution is presumption. Petition without precaution is presumption. We are to watch and pray. That admonition is given over and over in Scripture that you and I are to be people who watch and pray. Pray for your kids, but watch where they go. I, I mean, you know, don't just be blind in what you do. Be a person of prayer, but be a person who watches, who is aware of the times, who can discern the times and the things that are going on so you know how to pray intelligently. The resistance has begun to form, and the resistance has begun to organize and it's moved from ridicule to resistance. See, what happens is they want the people of Israel to say, man, everywhere we turn, we've got resistance. We might as well quit. I mean, this has failed before. It's obvious it's going to fail again. I make a motion that we don't do this. Uh, let's not rebuild the walls. Let's not restore the city. Let's not bring pride back to the city of Jerusalem. Let's just kind of live amidst the rubble. You know, we're just kind of beaten up and second rate anyway. Let's just live like that and just be happy we're alive. Nehemiah said, no, pray and watch. How do you handle resistance? You pray and you watch. Number three, there was rumor. Verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Here's what they were saying. We're going to attack, and you'll never know what hits you. Now, there is no mill that grinds any harder than the rumor mill. And so I want to give you two characteristics of rumors. And these are pretty true. Uh, in fact, I would stake a lot on these just being basic truths about rumors. Because I want you to understand, every one of us in this room, probably, if you've lived long enough, if you've breathed long enough, if you've done enough, if you've made any decisions, if you've made any choices in your life, somebody has started a rumor about you. Somebody started a rumor about your marriage, about your home, about your kids, about your ministry, about your work ethic, about your job. Somebody has started a rumor about you. So. How do, you, how do you deal with it? How do you respond to it? And how do you begin to understand it? Well, number one, the number one characteristic of rumors is they're always spread by those closest to the enemy. Verse 12. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. They will always be spread by those closest to the enemy. Notice that little phrase, the Jews who live near them. You know, carnality is contagious. Uh, doubt, doubt is a disease that can permeate quicker than anything. 
and you become like people you spend time with. Here's these Jews. They're supposed to be living inside the city, but they said, you know what, we want to go out here and live in the suburbs, so we're going to live out here. And they're living, you know, they bought a house right next to Sam Ballot. Sam Ballot comes over across the fence every day like Wilson does on home improvement, sticks his nose over into somebody else's business and gives his advice. He's always telling, always speaking, living next to the enemy. You know what happens? You begin to kind of tilt your ear toward the enemy and listen to what the enemy's saying to you, and at the same time, you're leaning this ear away from God. And all of a sudden, the voice of the enemy becomes more real to you than the voice of God and the Word of God. Yeah, I know the promises of God, but you know, they, they said they're going to overrun us. I know God said with him all things are possible. I know God said he can move mountains. I know God said that he would answer our prayer. I know God said to have faith in God and believe. I know what God said, but, but they have been telling me over and over again, God can't do that for me. I believe them. I don't believe God. And it'll cause doubt to rise up in your life instead of faith. Now let me ask you something. Which voice are you listening to? Are you living near enough to the enemy that you're hearing that enemy over and over say to you what you can't do, what you can't be, what you can't accomplish, bringing up your past, bringing up your failures, bringing up your problems? Are you listening to God who says he takes all that and washes it under the blood of Jesus Christ and he forgives our sin and he remembers it no more? Are you listening to God or are you listening to them? Now, had a hesitant show of hands this morning in the early service. I'll ask for it in this one, see if we get any. But how many of you, if, if I use the word gossip or rumor or, or slander or juicy story, man, somebody's name comes right to mind. I mean, you know somebody. Yeah, I know them. <laughs> Some of you are going, Let's see, where are they today? <laughs> Folks, let me tell you something. Basic principle. People who spread rumors have never humbled themselves before God because they delight in the destruction of others rather than in the building up of the kingdom. Rumor spreaders can do more than those who ridicule and cause resistance. They can kill a church, they can destroy a family. They can destroy your kids, and you've got to learn how to deal with them. They are people who live close to the enemy. John Maxwell says if Bill and Sam are a problem, and if Bill and Tom are a problem, and if Bill and Mary are a problem, and if Bill and Sue are a problem, and Bill and Joe are a problem, the problem's Bill. You know somebody, and you cannot let it go if you're going to have the victory and the freedom that you need to have in your life. Secondly, not only are they always spread by those closest to the enemy, but the rumor is exaggerated as it's repeated. See, some people like to pass information along, but a lot of people like to improve on it. The story is never as good as it was told to me, so I need to improve on it. Rumors are like rabbits. Doesn't take much to get them started. Before you know it, you got more than you can deal with and you don't really know how you got into the mess that you're in. They just kind of begin to multiply. Notice, 
They told us ten times. You see, when you hear something over and over again, you're going to start to believe it. Even Adolf Hitler said, if somebody hears something long enough, they'll believe it's the truth. All you got to do is just keep saying something over and over again, and you wear down people's going, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, I can see how that, you know, you know, that's a fact. That actually, I know that happened. You know, I wasn't there, but I know people that were there, and it's come all the way from a rumor to a fact. Why? Because it's told over and over and over and over again. Now, there's a law of leadership. Leaders never swallow rumors. They chase them down and deal with them. Someone has said busy people don't have time to be busy bodies. And I'll tell you this, the more interesting the gossip, the less likely it's true. The more interesting, ooh, boy, that's juicy, that sounds good. I can't wait to tell that. Just remember, the more interesting it is, the less likely it's true. I remember, <laughs> I remember several years back when the rumor was I had an airplane. I mean, it was going everywhere. People all over this town were talking about, you know, Pastor Sherwood, he makes so much money, he's got an airplane. And I killed that rumor. I said, that's not true. This is a helicopter pad out here for my helicopter, <laughs> which takes me to my airplane, which is at the airport. I want to make sure I get it straight. Everybody knows what this is out here. So, You know, and I thought, I don't know who started that one, but that's stupid to even start. I mean, you don't have to have a brain cell to start a rumor like that. Pastor Sherwood's got an airplane. All you got to do is call the deacon. Are we paying a pastor enough for him to own an airplane? And they're going to tell you, no. It's a Piper Cub with no engine and no wings, but he thinks it's an airplane. We just appease him, make him feel better about it. You see, you got to chase it down. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 13. I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. Three things. Number one, take a stand. Take a stand. I mean, the first thing you ought to say is, you know, I don't believe that. I don't believe. Why is it we have, in our culture, we have become so cynical and so skeptical that we automatically believe the worst and never believe the best? I'm going to tell you something, folks. All the stuff that's happening with the media and all the stuff that's happening with the president and all that stuff, it ultimately filters down to the church. It ultimately filters down to your family. It ultimately comes down to your kids. If we believe the rumors and if we spread the rumors and we don't have the facts and we don't have the knowledge and we're not prayed up, then ultimately it comes down on us. You have to take a stand. I mean, you can just say something like this. You know, I'm really tired of your tongue. Just like a lady came one time to a pastor and said, you know, I want to put my tongue on the altar. And the pastor said, lady, our altar's not big enough for your tongue. Our, our, our student minister was walking through the Family Life Center a, a few weeks ago, and he said something to somebody sitting in, in his old office, and before prayer meeting was over that night, everybody in the church was talking about it because one person heard it. I tell you, you can't get an altar big enough to stop that. I mean, that's called put it on the altar and die. Take a stand. Say, this is not 
appropriate in a God-fearing church that believes in holiness and in righteousness and in the truth. And we don't want that kind of stuff going on here. That's not welcome. Bring an alcoholic in the back door, bring a prostitute in the back door, bring a homosexual in the back door that says, I need Jesus, and you can come. But nobody is welcome that wants to run down other people. Now, that ought to be just a basic rule of the church. Because if you say, well, I think we just ought to let everybody be here, you're the next one that gets run down. By the way, those that spread gossip about other people to you spread gossip about you to other people. I hope you understand that. Number two, cover your bases. The exposed places. And number three, go to the source. Don't let folks hide behind they said. I remember uh, I was in Gary Miller's office one day and Somebody called and said, Gary, you know, so-and-so said something. So he just picked up the phone, called the guy at work. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He said, hey, I said, I understand you said something about, well, you know, brother, I'll do that. he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll be there at, well, what time do you get home? He said, 5 o'clock. He said, I'll be at your house at 5.15. I'm bringing the chairman of the deacons with me, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. Oh, no, no, brother, we don't need to do that. We don't, you know, he said, no, he said, they said you said this, and I'm going to get to the bottom of it, and we're going to get to the source. I told Gary after he hung up, he said, you know, it doesn't take about three phone calls like that to kind of shape everything up. You know, the role of deacons in the church is to deal with murmuring. That's one of the qualifications and one of the requirements for a deacon is to stop murmuring in a church. People who just keep running their mouths. You see, we, we, we like to think that the sins of the flesh are a whole lot more vile to God than the sins of the tongue or the sins of the heart. But sin is sin. And God hates sin no matter what form it comes in or no matter how we clean it up. And by the way, I never have believed they said anything. Because they usually means me and my buddy or me and my wife were talking the other day and we decided. And sometimes it just means that one person. If they won't name they, just erase it off your board. It never happened. Winston Churchill was on up in years, and he was serving again as Prime Minister of England, and he was at an official government function, and, and a couple of these young guys in government who thought they knew it all and thought they had it all figured out and were waiting for the, for the old fogies to move out of the way so they could take over, saw Churchill there, and they recognized him, and they began to talk about him. One of them said, well, you know, they say that Churchill is feeble in his mind now. He doesn't make good decisions. The other one said, well, you know, they say that he's just not as sharp as he used to be. And the other one said, well, you know, they say that he ought to turn the government over to some younger people who would run the government better. And someone said, they say he just doesn't make the decisions with the quickness that he used to. And the other guy says, well, you know, they say that, that he's just not leading our country in the direction we want it to go in. And Churchill turned around to the two young men and said, and they say he's deaf too. <laughs> you need to be deaf to rumors. Listen, folks, rumors die for lack of an audience. You don't know how to stop rumor bearers? Don't listen to them. Rumors die for lack of an audience. Somebody comes to you this week and says, you know, I heard something about a family in our church say, I don't believe it and I don't need to know about it. You want to put a card in the prayer room? I'll be in there this week and I'll certainly pray it through. But where we deal with things is in prayer. 
We don't deal with things over the call waiting. We don't deal with things over a telephone. We don't deal with things around the supper table and fellowship hall. We don't deal with issues and talking about people behind their back. We deal with things by taking people's needs and taking people's problems, and we turn them into matters of prayer. That's how we deal with things. Folks, that's how you deal with opposition. If it's ridicule, you pray. If it's resistance, you pray. If it's a rumor, you pray. But you don't just pray. You watch and you work and you cover the exposed places. Are you ready for God to take your opposition and turn it into your opportunity? Are you ready for God to take what the devil is trying to use against you and say, no, you know what? The enemy's not going to get that victory in my life. God's going to get that victory in my life. He's going to make a difference. He's going to turn this thing around, and it's going to be for his good. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.